Good morning. It is so good to get to be together this first Sunday of December. And just like classic uh, Georgia weather, it is 70 degrees on the first Sunday in December. Yep. Love it. But you are going to want a Bible this morning as we do what we do here at Grace. Worship God and then open his word to see how he might be speaking into our lives. So if you have a Bible, go on and open up to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah 9. If you need a Bible, just slip up a hand. We have some people walking through. Uh, They'll put a Bible in your hand so that you can follow along. And if you don't have a Bible at home, we we just consider that that Bible a gift from us. One of the greatest gifts we can receive, the, the words of the living word of God. So we are in our uh, Advent season in that expectation of arrival. The word Advent meaning literally arrival. It denotes the the arrival of a significant uh, person or uh, a a significant event. And so in Advent, we uh, pause to reflect on the arrival of the most significant person and significant event in the history of the world, the birth of Jesus And at the same time, we we look back and we see that that God showed up. The Word, as John 1 says, took on flesh and moved into the neighborhood uh, full of grace and truth. Jesus, the the visible image of an invisible God, Emmanuel, God with us. As we look back 2,000 years ago to that, that significant moment in history when a baby was born in a little town called Bethlehem that would forever change the world. And with the birth of that baby, God was ushering in hope and peace and joy and love. And so in Advent, we take time to reflect on each of those significant aspects of the birth of Christ. And as we even light a candle, remembering that is with the birth of Christ, that God, the light of the world, was shining in the darkness, bringing peace and hope. But not only is Advent a season that we look back on what God did and the arrival of Jesus who came, the fulfillment of the prophecies of old, all of Scripture, all of history pointing to Jesus, but also we look forward to Jesus who promises that one day he will come again. One day when Jesus returns to set the world right, to wipe away every tear where sin and death will be no more. And so in Advent season, we pause to reflect on Jesus who came and our own anticipation of Jesus who will come again. But also, Advent, not just Jesus who came and Jesus who will come, but Jesus who invites us to experience the arrival of his presence into our lives and into our world right now. The availability of the living God of this universe for us in every moment of our ordinary lives. And so we've taken this Advent season to, to just pause, as a, it, it out, to pull out of the rush and the busyness of the Christmas season to say, Jesus, will you open my heart to your arrival into my world right now? Whatever it is that I'm facing, whatever it is that I'm carrying, that Jesus, you wait to meet with me with your peace and your hope, your joy. And your love. And so that is the invitation of Advent. And one of the things that 
as we've entered into Advent and as a church, I've been asking God, okay, God, how are you moving? How are you arriving into our world right now? I've been so blessed to watch the way this church has responded uh, in, in practically meeting the needs of the world around us. And, and one of those, for example, is, uh, you know, a few weeks ago, uh, we as a church decided that we wanted to, to sponsor Christmas for children that were in the foster care system. And, uh, and as a church, we've just said that we want to make sure that, that we are creating space, that we are uh, uh, loving and encouraging uh, the most vulnerable kids and families in our community. And so a simple way was to say, let's just make sure they all get a good, a, a good fun Christmas. And so we took uh, what felt like a, a big goal for us, uh, just over half of the kids in the Walton County um, uh, DFACS system, uh, we took 75 kids and said, hey, can we find 75 families to sponsor these kids for Christmas? And by the end of that first Sunday, all 75 kids were claimed by many of you to, who said, we'll provide, we will take away from our Christmas in order to bless them with a special Christmas. But so last week, Nicole, who helps lead our uh, foster care ministry here, got a phone call from DFAC saying, you know, they're coming to the end of that, that season and other groups and people have opted to, to meet the other, you know, there's 140 kids or so in Walton County DFACs. Uh, well, there were 15 uh, families or, or people short. There were 15 kids that did not get sponsored. And so Nicole was really wrestling. She was like, man, we already put this out in front of our church and we 75, but all right, let's see what happens. Give them all to us. So she took, got 15 more names and uh, that was on Thursday. I, I, I called her yesterday to say, okay, I want to announce this Sunday or tomorrow morning. Um, how many of those kids do we still have left? And she said, she said, all but two have already been claimed. And then she texted me about an hour later and said, just kidding, they've all been claimed. So praise the Lord as a church. That is 90 kids in our community that you're providing Christmas for. And at the same time, that's in our own backyard. And, uh, and we recognize at the same time, uh, over the last month and a half or so, we've been grieving and praying for the, 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 the violence and the conflict going on on the other side of the world in Israel and Palestine and Gaza. And, uh, and so we, we uh, found, discovered this need that these, uh, our Christian brothers and sisters, Palestinian Christians that were sheltering in place in the middle of that conflict in Gaza, uh, that through a pastor and a friend of ours, uh, we we're trying to figure out a way to, to get food and immediate relief supplies to them sheltering in that church in Gaza. It's like one of the, the second oldest church in the existing church in the world right now uh, that's in the middle of that conflict. And, uh, and so as a church family, the Grace family of churches, we said, well, we're willing to step into that to make sure that our, our brothers and sisters uh, across the world are, have food. And so uh, we put that in front of Grace Monroe's, one of the first Grace churches, to say, hey, let's, uh, let's invite our people into that. And so far, uh, you as a church have raised uh, over $13,000 to go towards, um, towards <laughs> providing relief in Gaza. And, and what amazes me is that uh, the, these are just the, the church providing to, to needs in our own backyard and saying we want to be a church that engages in needs around the world and in places that we're connected by friendship and it, with our ministry partners over in the Middle East. It also comes at a time that, um, that 
it was just a few months ago that we laid out in front of the church and said, as our church has grown, as ministries are all growing, um, and, uh, and as our church continues to give, the, the, the size and the scale of the ministry that's happening now, it's, is the cost is more than the amount of giving coming in. So we were looking at a budget deficit at the end of, the, at the end of our fiscal year. And uh, so we just put that in front of the church and just said, man, we're grateful for your generosity, but prayerfully consider how you might give to this local church. And I've been uh, um, overwhelmed with gratitude as I've watched you as a body uh, step in with generosity to the mission and the ministry of your local church here at Grace Monroe, that more people than ever in the history of Grace have given to Grace in the last month and a half than ever before. And so, so when I'm looking at this in Gaza and I'm looking at this response to our, our defects, kids, the kids are in defects, and at the same time, the way that you're uh, engaging here in uh, the ministry of this church, it's, it's amazing. And so I just want to say thank you. Uh, thank you for your heart and uh, your willingness to sacrifice and give. So yeah, praise the Lord. Thank you. <clears throat> and so with that, I'm going to continue the invitation. And that is that we, uh, when we first got planted as a church um, about 12 years ago, 14 years ago, uh, the, the heart of Grace Monroe that got planted out of Grace Snellville um, in, in this little community with a heart to, to be a gospel expression, reaching the neighborhoods, the nations, and the next generation, we had a heart to say, we want to be a church that one day plants churches the same way that we were planted as a church. That out of Monroe would be gospel expressions that would go out into the world, whether down the road or across the ocean. And so a year ago, we, uh, um, our executive pastor and his wife, Brandon and Rena, God was beginning to stir in their heart the possibility of being sent as a church plant down the road into that Lake Oconee area, those kind of three cities around um, Eatonton, uh, um, Madison, and Greensboro. And over the last year, I've been praying into that. Well, it is fun to get to announce that in January, uh, Brandon and Reno will be full-time moving down there to launch that church plant. And so at, with that, I've just really and been talking to the elders about that, is that we, we believe this is God calling, sending from our family to go launch a new family. And so many of you, as families, have said, we want to go be a part of that. You know, we were already looking at moving into that way, or we already have family or connections or work connections down there. And so God is raising up other families to go be a part of this brand new church plant uh, out of Grace Monroe, which is just a beautiful thing. But also we wanted to bless them as we send them as part of our family to go launch this new gospel expression in this rapidly growing area of our state. And, uh, and so with that, next week, um, Brandon's going to be preaching as part of our Grace Kids celebration. And, uh, and so we, we decided, and we were going to keep it a secret, but I'm pretty sure he's in here and we're ruining the surprise. But... That we wanted to, to collect a, a seed gift to send to go launch, to help launch that church plant. And so next Sunday, uh, we're going to do a pa an old school pass the bucket kind of offering. So over and above your normal giving, asking that this week you prayerfully consider how God might lead you to give to go launch this new church plant. Um, and we want to go on and tell you ahead of time, just because if you're, you're like me, uh, like right now you have no cash nor a checkbook with you. 
And so we wanted you to be prepared for that. So uh, I know we don't normally pass an offering. We, most people give online or as they, uh, in the offering boxes as they, as they leave. But next week, at the end of the service, we're going to pass a bucket. And we're going to take up a special offering for that brand new church plant uh, that's, uh, that we're so excited about. And so we'd ask that you prayerfully consider giving. And at a minimum, as a church, that we would be a church committed to praying and, uh, for our brothers and sisters that God raises up to go. And so uh, one of the first things to be praying for is that tonight, actually, is going to be the first, uh, the first uh, worship and prayer gathering of that fledgling church plant. Uh, they're going to be meeting for a little Christmas celebration. Some of the families from Grace Monroe that God is raising up are going to connect with some of the families down there in the Grace Lake area. And uh, they're going to have their first uh, church gathering this evening. So be praying tonight that that would just be a, a special time that lays a strong foundation from which to launch the church. So I'd love to just pray, pause right now and just pray uh, for this, uh, this church plant that's getting sent out from our body. And at the same time, I pray that, uh, that this is just the beginning of many uh, gospel expressions that go out, whether it's down the road or across the country or over the ocean, that one day, 10, 20 years from now, there will be churches planted all over the world that somehow are launched from this little old town of Monroe, Georgia. Isn't that a beautiful thought? So let's pray. Lord Jesus, I do thank you that you call us partners in the gospel. That we get to partner with you and your good news. Lord, it's you that's already at work. It's you that is faithful. Your kingdom, like a mustard seed that starts small and seemingly insignificant, but transforms the world. Like yeast and dough that permeates the batch. And so we pray just a word of blessing over this uh, church plant. We pray for Brandon and Rena. Thank you for the fire that you've lit in them. Thank you for the families already that have started to, to gather around them to form the beginning of a community of faith uh, for, that, uh, for those cities and for that place. And so we pray for that community. Lord, we recognize that even there in that, that region around the lake is... Uh, is one of the most poverty-stricken areas of our state, and at the same time, one of the wealthiest areas of our country. And somehow, Lord, in a, play, in a way that you say that in the gospel, there is no Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free, all are one in Christ. We pray you would create a gospel expression for all people, for every man, woman, and child, that they would discover the goodness of your kingdom. And so we pray a blessing over that church. And as for us as a church here in Monroe, will you continue to call forth your movement in and through us, whether it's across the street or down the road or across the world, Lord. May we be faithful to your call. Thank you that we get to be a part of your gospel. And we pray all of these things. We pray for tonight. We pray that that would be a sweet time of joy and fellowship. And God, we pray, thank you in advance for all the things that even now we can't begin to ask for or imagine. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you. And I'm sure if you're still interested in coming and being a part of that thing, uh, that gathering tonight, uh, Brandon would still love for you to come. I don't know. Is Brandon in here now? Somebody tell him to hang out afterwards. And if you want to go down to the lake uh, tonight, then let him know.
So as we were praying about how to approach the Advent season, we were, we, uh, it, it felt appropriate to look back at the way that uh, the prophets of old were holding on to God's promises in anticipation of God's future fulfillment. Even as we sit now waiting for the final fulfillment of God's promises. And so we wanted to, to look back at the words of the prophet, and you would pull up that uh, from First Peter. Peter, who writes, concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and the circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And even angels long to look into these things. In other words, that the prophets of old, those that came declaring the mystery and the wonder of God's salvation and redemptive plan, 700, 800 years before Jesus was to be born in Bethlehem, that those prophets, that they were speaking a word to the people in their day, were also speaking a word to us. That God was giving them a message for yes back then, but God was also giving them a message of grace for us to receive now. And that the words that they carried, not even fully understanding the significance of what they were proclaiming, that even the angels stand in anticipation waiting for the mystery of God to be revealed, of which we now, on this side of Jesus, get to embrace and celebrate fully. It's like a kid. I don't know. Uh, I know in my family, on Christmas morning, that we were not allowed to come downstairs until my mom said it was okay. And I don't know if it really just took her that long to fix her hair and get a cup of coffee, or if she just enjoyed torturing her children. But <laughs> it felt like an eternity. Anybody else like just waiting on the staircase, wait like at the top, and you couldn't come down to the third stair. I mean, you had to stay at the top of the stairs. Wait, and I would hear them like messing around and right, getting the fire going and, you know, shuffling into the kitchen and out. I was like, now, not yet, now, not yet, now. Until finally it was like, now. And we come sprinting down the stairs to see what might be under the tree. It's, and that is like a, a microcosm of this picture in heaven of the angels waiting in anticipation. Now, not yet. Now, not yet. And then that baby born in Bethlehem. And so they show up in full force to a little group of shepherds and declare peace on earth, goodwill to men, for a baby has been born in Bethlehem, the one whom the prophets foretold. It becomes such a, a familiar story that we almost miss the, the agonizing emotion of the moment. This is what their hearts had longed for, the fulfillment of what God had promised in Jesus. Peace in a child. Now, if we pause from 
that story into our world today, it doesn't take but a quick glance at the headlines to come to the resounding conclusion that we don't live in a world at peace. Whether that is from Ukraine to Gaza or downtown Atlanta to our own city or even into our own homes. That there are many of us, they say, that live without peace. Whether that's peace in our circumstances, peace in the world around us, peace in our own souls. I mean, epidemic in our world today is, is anxiety and depression, loneliness and fear. I mean, we're a, a people at war within ourselves. Much less the conflict that we face in relationships and families and marriages. That we live in a world at war. And yet Isaiah prophesied, Isaiah 9, starting in verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Do you know what it feels like to walk in darkness? I do. Or it doesn't feel, or it feels like you don't know where you're going. Or you feel lost or stuck or alone. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil, the fruit of anticipation. And what is that harvest? For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken, as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood, the violence and the chaos of this world will be burned as fuel for the fire. How? Will this victorious expression of peace on earth come about? Verse 6, for to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end as God is speaking these words through the prophet Isaiah he lived in a world much like our own world I mean the headlines of his day were not that different than the headlines of our day at the time the Assyrians which still today uh, thousands of years later are considered one of the most vicious gruesome uh, 
armies and empires to have ever inhabited the planet. Uh, the things that they did to their enemies, the ways that they stoked fear in those that would dare stand against them. The Assyrian armies had already come in and wiped out the northern kingdom of Israel and were now beckoning at the gates of the southern kingdom of Judah, soon to come in to, uh, to, to the capital city of Jerusalem. They'd already wiped out the northern rulers and taken the people into exile in the, in the top half of of Israel and the, and the northern tribes. And, and so with the threat of, of domination and conflict and violence at their doorstep, the, their economy was collapsing around them. And they were making efforts of peace to any nation that would listen to them. To, to the Egyptians, they were begging, come in and provide us a lifeline to protect us from the vicious Assyrians. And, and, and and even to the Assyrians, the reason that Assyria hadn't come in yet, uh, well, apart from God holding them back, but in their mind, the reason they hadn't is because they were in negotiation that somehow they could work out a peace treaty and live somehow even under Assyrian rule. But the rulers and the priests had completely neglected and were no longer listening to God. God who was saying, trust in me and I will be your protection. Trust in me and I will be your victory. And they're like, no, 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 no. We need another nation to come in and have our back. No, no, no. We need a, another group of people. that They've got some chariots. God, I can't see you. I can see their horses. Give me some of those. And so in the midst of global conflict and economic desperation, and political division and religious failing, Isaiah spoke a prophecy that one day all of the implements of violence and war would be burned as in a fire because a child was going to be born. And that child, this anointed promised king, the Messiah, would somehow usher in a reign of peace and justice and righteousness that would be forever. Now, when they heard these words in their imagination, they're imagining an earthly kingdom, a, a king that would rule with power and authority, that would wipe away their, their enemies and, and set up a government that could rival any of the other kingdoms and governments around them. This is why when Jesus showed up, and they began to proclaim Hosanna, that he was the Messiah, the salvation that they were waiting for. But then he was crucified on a Roman cross that, that the religious leaders immediately turned away and said, no way that this could have been the Messiah because you can't kill the king. But the kind of peace that Jesus was bringing was something much bigger than any earthly kingdom could possibly provide because the, every war on this planet every conflict within humanity is simply the echo of a greater war that we declared from the beginning of creation in Genesis chapter 3 when mankind turned their back on and rebelled against the good God that made us And 
Genesis 3. Adam and Eve quit listening to the voice of God to listen to the voice of the serpent that provides a different way, lies about the heart of God, lies about their future and their destiny, offers them something that only God could provide, but they listen to that voice and they disobey God. They turn against God and therefore, in, in doing so, turn their backs against one another in conflict and violent shame, guilt, fear, hiding, accusation, blame, enter into our world. And in Genesis chapter 3, in just the first couple pages of the Bible, we have the groundwork from which all of history has flowed. And yet, in the middle of that chaotic, tragic scene in Genesis 3, God plants the seed of a promise that he wasn't done with humanity. Genesis 3 15. As God is declaring the curse on the world because of the choices of mankind, he makes this statement to the serpent. And I will put enmity or hostility between you and the woman and between your seed or your offspring, the things that come from you, and her seed, her offspring, that he shall bruise or crush you on the head and you shall bruise and strike him on the heel. In other words, God's saying that there will be hostility between you the children of the serpent and the children of Eve. And this is more than simply the reason why none of us like snakes. That that is also true. But this is something much deeper. Between your seed and her seed, but... There will come one from the seed, from, from the children of Eve... There will become one, a child of Eve, who would one day crush the head of that ancient serpent. Now the question, though, that doesn't get answered here is that the one who crushes the head, and crushing the head of a snake obviously is a, is a mortal wound. It's a, it's a, it is the defeat of that ancient enemy. But the question that doesn't get answered in Genesis 3.15 is, does the one who kills the snake also die in the encounter? And that's a question that doesn't get answered for thousands of years from this point. So from Genesis 3 to Isaiah 9, sin passes and increases from one generation to the next and into the increasing chaos and violence of the world. Isaiah speaks this word of hope this word of peace that a baby would be born. And then this baby has four titles that are given. Wonderful counselor, wise one, wise guide, mighty God, that this one would, would carry with him the presence of God, everlasting father, an eternal rule of a good ruler. And then we get Prince of Peace. And so when Jesus comes, 
disappointing. All of the messianic expectations of an earthly government that would, with military force, wipe away the enemies of the people. But instead, hangs and dies on a cross, bringing a greater peace, ending a deeper conflict because this one is bringing peace with God without which all other conflict flows. Colossians 1.19 But God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him being Jesus. And through him to reconcile to himself all things whether things on earth or things in heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the cross once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. That in Christ, God was reconciling mankind back to himself. You see, in the prophecy of this king to come, this baby that would be born bringing peace with him, they missed the other prophecy of this future coming king. And that was that this king was also the suffering servant that was born to die. Isaiah 53, the prophet declares of this one to come. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. In other words, there was nothing attractive about his appearance that would draw people to himself. In fact, he was despised, rejected by mankind. He was a man of sorrows and well acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. But surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement or the punishment that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've all turned, every one of us, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So what was God's plan for bringing peace into the world? 
that he had to deal with the sin of mankind that, that tore us apart from intimacy and relationship with him, our creator, and therefore tears us apart from one another. And then from this microcosm spreading out through thousands and thousands of years and, and billions of relationships creating havoc across the planet, God had to deal with the very thing at the core that was putting us in conflict within ourselves and with one another. He had to deal with our sin. He had to deal with the wrath that we deserve for our pride and rebellion, our selfishness and our deceit. And yet he had to deal with the thing that was destroying us without destroying us. The ones that deserve the punishment for our rebellion and our sin. And so on him, this king, this peacemaker to come, God would pour out his wrath and he would suffer and die that we might have peace. So in Advent, this season of repentance and reflection, of preparing our hearts and recognition of Jesus who came and, and this now but not yet of us waiting for Jesus to come and this invitation to a Jesus who is, makes himself available to arrive in our lives and our souls even right now. The first invitation is an invitation into peace with God through Christ and the forgiveness of sins. That at the cross, God dealt once and for all that death blow to Satan as he himself died for us that we could live with him and so the invitation of Christmas isn't just about a baby that was born it is that we might be born into a new life by the forgiveness of God in Christ but the good news of the gospel that those is that isn't just simply that those at war with God have been brought to peace with God in Christ, but those that have been brought to peace with God in Christ are called to be peacemakers in this world. That those who have been reconciled to God in Jesus are called to be ministers of reconciliation. That the peace that we enter into through the cross and with Jesus is the peace that we enter into this world carrying. 2 Corinthians 5 declares... Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, any of us, all of us that are in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. And all of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us this message of reconciliation. So we are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God who made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
As Jesus declares in Matthew 5, blessed are the peacemakers. But to bring peace, we must first be at peace. If I'm living unforgiven or living in unforgiveness, the voice of the accuser still sits on my shoulder. My shame is still a weapon that can be used against me, holding me hostage in bondage to my own fear and my own guilt. If I'm living unforgiven or refusing to release in forgiveness, my own bitterness becomes a poison in my soul. I'm not able to enter into this world as an ambassador, as a reconciler, as a peacemaker. I'm not able to actually truly engage to open my heart to another because of the fear that if I open my heart to you, I might be rejected. It might just kill me if you actually see what's inside of me. But the power of the gospel is that there's a God of this universe that knows everything about you better than you know yourself, every hidden closet, every place of shame or guilt, every condemnation and accusation that you throw at yourself, he has heard and he has still not turned his face away from you and opened his arms wide to receive you and says, my son, my daughter, you are mine and in me, you are forgiven. And from that place, that place, of being rooted in the love of God, we can stand up as children of God, sons and daughters of the King who came and enter into this world in the confidence that only God can give because there is nothing that you can do to me or do against me or even do for me that changes what God has already done. To bring peace, we must first be at peace. Last week, I shared uh, an invitation into, uh, into this Advent season and reclaiming uh, one of the practices of the early church fathers, which was uh, that Advent as a season of repentance and fasting. And that the early church fathers uh, would fast the Monday, Wednesday, and Friday leading up to Christmas as, uh, as, a, um, as a season of uh, preparing their heart to receive Christ in a fresh way, of, of returning back to God in a way that uh, their hearts had wandered away from Him throughout the year. And it's funny because I, uh, I know when I started talking about fasting, I started getting a, a few eye rolls because it feels like we're, we're talking about, we, we fast a lot here at Grace or invite into fasting a lot. In fact, one of my favorite times of the year is uh, what we call Watch Week, um, which if you've been a part of Grace for uh, a period, extended period of time, you, you've been a part of Watch Week. It's that we set aside the first few days of the year um, for prayer, worship, and fasting. And in uh, the last few years, um, for several years now, we have been, uh, as a church, entering into what's called a Daniel fast. It's a 21-day partial fast where for 21 days, uh, it, um, in, uh, in line with, uh, with Daniel, um, giving up, and Daniel talks about giving up delicacies and choice meats, 
the food of the king, uh, to uh, only receive vegetables and water in order to, to live as a child of the two ki- true king in the midst of a pagan empire. And, and so the Daniel fast carries with it this idea of giving up these delicacies in order to sort of reset our hearts and our minds around the things of God. That's, that's the point of fasting. But there was, and for the first couple of years, it was really beautiful. As a church, we really rallied around this and, you know, 21 days of figuring out, like, yeah, we're going to enter into this intentionally. We're going to enter into this together. But, but if I'm honest, the last couple of years, I've kind of been a little bit disturbed by the Daniel fast, uh, and not in a good way. Um, it's uh, in that it, it felt like as a church, and even within my, and, and, uh, within my own family and myself, and, and myself uh, is that it moved from being a fast to becoming a diet. And that, you know, we, we would be swapping recipes that basically just trying to answer the question, like, how much can I get away with that's still considered fasting, but I still get to eat what I want to eat? Like, do fried buffalo cauliflower count as part of the Daniel fast? Or can I bake a cookie that uses raisins and vegetable powder that still somehow tastes like a chocolate chip cookie? I, I feel like, it's like we, we've totally missed the point, right? I, I'm thinking more about food fasting than I ever did before I was fasting. When the whole point of fasting is to, to take our minds off of our bodily appetites in order to reset our minds on the things of God. And so entering into this Advent season and extending this, this fast in this Advent season of Monday, Wednesday, Friday, leading up to Watch Week, one of the reasons that I feel, like, as your pastor, that is so important to lean into this, and, I, and, and for most of American Christianity, regardless of what tradition you come out of, fasting has not been a part of our church upbringing. The idea of fasting. We get praying, we get reading our Bible, we get giving and generosity, but, but fasting is one of those things, and there's a reason for that. And that is because it flies counter to the, every bit of our American culture. Like, we live in a culture that is consumed with consuming. I mean, it's the water that we swim in. Like, we don't even realize there is no disconnect between my desire and my choice to satisfy that desire. Especially now, when at the click of a button, anything that I could think of that I could possibly want will be on my doorstep by this afternoon, if not then by tomorrow. That if I'm hungry, at a turn, I can get something to eat. If I'm thirsty, at a turn, I can get a a, a benti, mocha, frappuccino, caramelato, right? Like, I can have whatever I want whenever I want it. And and so, there's not an indictment. It's just, this is the world we live in. There's not a conscious thought, is there? Think about it. The last time that you had a hunger pang, was there actually, like, an impulse in your brain that stopped to say, wait, do I actually need, like, need to eat? What's going on in me? When was the last time we paused? And I think there are two great enemies to our Christian faith. I mean, there's lots of them, but two of the most significant ones, I think, uh, that is paralyzing us in our faith. And one is our own appetites, and the second one is the noise and the busyness of this world, both of which are keeping us from God. 
And the point of fasting is to do something counter, radically counter to the, to the lives that we're living and the world that we're living in. Which makes sense, that if we want to be a people at peace who are bringing peace, then we've got to break away from the ways of a world that is at war and in conflict with itself and with one another. What's, working, what's not working in the world is not going to work in us if we just keep doing what the rest of the world is doing. So we have to make a choice to say, I'm going to do something intentionally different that breaks me from the pattern of this world in order to begin to think differently that I can go to the one that can actually give me the things that my soul craves. That's the point of fasting, is to reset our minds and hearts around the only one that can actually satisfy the hunger of our soul. But here's what I'll tell you. It's really hard. It's really hard. And that's okay. The first time that you intentionally give up food in order to, to create more space to pray, to hear from God, it, like you don't love life in that moment. You're actually probably gonna be more of a jerk to your spouse because you don't feel good. And that's okay. It's not okay that you're a jerk to your spouse, but it's okay that we don't feel good. It's okay that we deny ourselves because unless we deny ourselves, can we, until we deny ourselves, can we actually receive what God is wanting us to receive? There's an invitation beyond simply peace with God in Christ that's the forgiveness of sins so that one day in heaven we can have peace with God forever there's an invitation into peace with God in this chaotic conflicted world that we live in now but in order to enter into peace with God in this conflicted uh, uh, disordered world that we're in now we have to live in a different way than the rest of this conflicted disordered world and so the invitation as we're praying about this this year is uh, Watch Week actually begins, uh, or sorry, um, Sunday is uh, December 31st, at New Year's Eve. And so we'll begin Watch Week with worship on Sunday morning, December 31st. We're just gonna do one service at 10 o'clock on New Year's Eve. And, uh, and then we open up this room as a prayer room. And there's prayer stations set up around the room. And we ask the church to sign up for an hour or however long uh, that there's 24-7 prayer happening out of this room. So we invite you to come pray throughout the week, whether it's 2 a.m. or 2 p.m. And so we'll start that 24-7 prayer uh, with worship on Sunday morning, December 31st, and extend it through that first week of the year to January 7th, that following Sunday. Now, we've made the decision that we're shifting our, worship, our monthly worship and prayer nights to the first Sunday of the month. That actually begins tonight. So we'll have, there'll be a worship night tonight here. Um, but that also means that the first worship night of 2024 will be January 7th. It will be the end of Watch Week. And so the thought was, is what if as a church, instead of a 21-day partial fast that we kind of you know, turns into a diet and we forget about after a week, is that we intentionally enter into that whole week together. And so here's the challenge slash invitation for Grace Monroe for Watch Week 2024, is that we would enter into a sunrise to sunset fast from, uh, from Monday, January 1st, uh, seven days through January 7th, uh, and that we would break fast the way that our early church fathers broke fast. Now, do you know how the early church fathers broke fast? 
with communion. And so that we would end our watch week, a time of intentional prayer and fasting, uh, in those times that we would normally go get a meal or eat lunch, come up here to the church to pray or go for a walk around your neighborhood and pray. And, uh, but fast, basically you're fasting two meals a day for seven days. And uh, to break fast together with communion at worship night on January 7th, and then follow it with a big Mediterranean feast up in the coffee shop together. And so that's how we're going to do Watch Week this year. Um, the reason I tell you that now, and that's still several weeks away, is because we're viewing Advent as kind of a practice. Like if you've never fasted for any extended period of time, it's probably a lot to jump into Monday, Wednesday, Friday, the traditional Advent fast. And so my ask for you is over this Advent season is pick one day, two days, that to intentionally begin that practice of fasting so that together, collectively as a church, we can enter into that week, that first week of the year, the seven days of intentionally praying, fasting, and worshiping God together to reset our hearts and our minds as a church family on the things of God to enter us into 2024. But with that, I'll say this. It's going to suck. And that's okay. It's going to be hard. Your stomach's going to growl. You're going to think that you're going to die. <laughs> and that's okay. Because what that's telling you is, most of my life, I don't intentionally curb my appetites. And so God, help me. And it's not just about gritting your teeth and getting through it. It's that in those moments that our stomach growls and that we want what we want when we want it, is that we turn our hearts and our minds to God. God, will you be the one to fill me? Will you meet me here? What do you want me to know? What are you doing? Philippians 4, or sorry, Isaiah 26, 3, that you keep in perfect peace the one whose mind or imagination is stayed or fixed on you because that one trusts in you. Philippians echoes that in chapter 4. Paul writes, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. So don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Jesus is inviting us into a different way, a different way of peace in our lives that we can bring peace into this world that begins first with us finding peace with God and the forgiveness of Christ. And so as we continue in worship together, and each week that we enter into this, this rhythm of reminding ourselves of the peace of God in Christ that God gave us this beautiful sim symbolic picture in communion. And at the Last Supper, moments before he'd walk out the door to the cross, Jesus would take the bread of Passover and he would break it and he would say, this is my body given for you. Take, eat. And every time you do this, do this in remembrance of me. In other words, bring into your present reality the truths of the past the very presence of God available to us as tangible as that bread that we eat given for us. 
And then Jesus would take that cup of, of the Passover that represented the blood of the lamb that was slain, uh, delivering the people out of slavery into the promised land. And, and he would take that cup that for thousands of years, this cup of redemption, and he would point to the blood of the lamb represented in that cup and say, this blood, sorry, this cup is my blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins. The blood of a new covenant. Take and drink. And every time you do this, do this in remembrance of me. In communion, we receive and embrace the peace of God in the presence and the forgiveness of Christ. Now, Paul also says, don't enter into communion lightly, but search your mind and your heart. Is there anything that you need to confess or deal with, any place that you're still at war with God, any place that you're still in conflict with God, any idol that you're bowing to that is not God. And so I want to do communion a little bit different today. Normally, we, we you know, stand up and we'll form lines and we'll come around and, uh, and receive communion. But my invitation is that before we take communion today, is that we get on our knees and kneel in a posture of surrender that we might receive the true peace of Christ. And so maybe to come and kneel up here or to kneel where you're seated and, uh, and so invite you to come to communion this way. To come kneel first and surrender and ask God to search your heart. God, is there anything that I need to let die with you on the cross that I could receive your goodness and righteousness into my life? And then from that place of surrender and confession, to stand up and then to go take communion, the reminder of the peace of God with us and for, and for us. And so I just invite you to close your eyes. We ask Lord Jesus, God, we thank you that you are our peace. We thank you that this baby born in Bethlehem was the peacemaker, the Prince of Peace, but that it'd be by his, your death, God, that you would bring peace into our souls, into our lives. That you invite us back into peace with yourself. That we might live at peace within ourselves. To live at peace with one another. So that we might bring peace into this world. May we be a people of peace, God. And so even right now, Lord, will you search our hearts? As we look back on this last week, is there any place that we're still living in conflict with you? Is there any place we need to receive forgiveness or to release somebody else in forgiveness that's wounded us? What do you want us to know? So church, I invite you to kneel where you are, or to kneel up here, and let's enter into communion together.